0: Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and today I am by myself to deliver to you an update on the Delphi murders. So, before we get started, I do want to offer a warning that the subject matter of this episode gets particularly disturbing at times because it does involve the sexual exploitation of children. So listener's discretion is advised. I think it's probably for the best that Austin isn't on this episode with me because this kind of stuff really bothers him as it should. Um, and there's some things that he's willing to listen to and some things that he's just really not. So, um, Today we are coming, or I am coming at you with an update to a still unsolved case that has baffled much of America, but especially the residents of a small town in Indiana. So in February of 2017... The bodies of Abigail Williams and Liberty German were discovered near the Monon High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana, the day after they mysteriously went missing. We actually covered this story on episode 37. So if you want to go catch up, I suggest listening to that to freshen up your memory of this case. We actually recorded that case. On February, or that episode, on February 12th of 2021. And since then, a lot has happened. But just for a quick recap, Abigail and Liberty were enjoying a day off of school on February 13th of 2017. They decided to go hiking, so they had Liberty's older sister drop them off at the Delphi Historic Trails. While the girls were on their hike, they were taking pictures and posting them to Snapchat. And the last thing posted was a picture of Abby that Libby took, and it's Abby walking across this abandoned bridge. And as you can see, the rest of the bridge in the background, if you look closely to the start of the bridge on the other side, you can see the silhouette of a man who's about to start walking on the bridge. This was posted at about 2.07 p.m. that day. And that was the last thing either of them posted or sent to anyone. At 3.15, Libby's father arrived at the trails to pick them up, but the girls weren't where they said they would be. So he got out and he started looking for the girls, but there was no sign of either of them. They were soon reported as missing after an initial search showed no signs of the girls. Once law enforcement joined the search and by noon the next day, the girls' bodies were found. It was evident that the girls were murdered, but police never came out with a lot of details about the case. They remained tight-lipped on the manner of death, other than that it was a homicide. They also wouldn't reveal if they collected any DNA from the scene, or whose DNA that might be, if they did... Although in an attempt to maintain the integrity of the case, this allowed for a lot of people in town and on social media to use their own imagination and start rumors about what they believed happened to the girls. Some of Liberty's own family was even accused of having something to do with this, which her sister Kelsey has publicly and vehemently denied. One thing they did release, however, was a short clip from a video that was found on Liberty's phone. So, As this man was walking towards them on the bridge, Liberty had the peace of mind or the frame of mind to open up her camera on her phone and take a video. So this man is walking towards them. And at one point he says, guys down the hill, but this was just a short clip of what is actually a 43 second long video. They only, the police or law enforcement only decided to release this small clip to see if anyone might recognize the voice on the recording. So initially, I assume based off of this video, police came up with a sketch of the suspect, and it did appear to closely resemble the man in the video. But then two years later, there was a second sketch released that didn't resemble that sketch or the guy in the video at all. The first sketch looked like an older man with facial hair, looked like the guy in the video, but the second sketch appeared to be that of a younger man and a clean shaven face. So why was there this discrepancy? Well, apparently this second sketch was actually drawn just a few days after the murder, but it just wasn't released to the public until two years later. This sketch was based on eyewitnesses who were in the area at the time of the murder. But despite having video footage, audio footage, and eyewitness testimony, police to this day have been unable to make an arrest for the murders of Abigail and Liberty. However, with some new developments in the case, they may be closer than ever to finally making an arrest. So let's rewind a little bit to December 6th of 2021. Police announced that they uncovered a fictitious social media account called Anthony underscore shots, and they were looking for information anyone might have regarding that account. If anyone communicated with that profile or just knew anything about it, the profile of Anthony shots showcased a feed of a young guy appearing to be in his teens. He was very muscular showing off his abs, and he was also advertising himself as a model, He boasted that he was really wealthy and owned these sports cars, but behind the profile was no rich muscle-bound model, rather quite the opposite. Kegan Klein was the creator of the fake Instagram profile. Kegan who's 27, morbidly obese and slovenly, very unattractive, and listen, maybe I sound harsh, but you'll agree with me in a second once we get into this. He hid behind this account, pretending to be this young model to get girls to talk to to him in hopes that they would send him inappropriate pictures. But in real life, Kegan bounced from job to job, couch to couch, living at one point in Vegas with a roommate, and then moving back to Indiana to live with his dad, Tony. And police determined that the Anthony Schatz profile was the last to communicate with Liberty before her death. So now let's rewind even further to February 25th of 2017, just a couple weeks after the murder, police served a search warrant at Kegan and Tony Klein's home. The probable cause affidavit was heavily redacted, so the cause for the search warrant is still unknown, but I can comfortably assume that it was probably related to the Delphi case. But let me just be clear, that is just an assumption. During this search warrant, local and state police and the FBI took multiple devices from the home, including Kegan and Tony's cell phones and computers. There was an iPhone 4 that was registered to Kegan Klein. There was also a Samsung Galaxy S4 and an iPhone 3. And we'll discuss this more in detail in a moment, but on these devices that were registered to Kegan, detectives eventually found disturbing evidence of child sexual abuse material of kids as young as three years old. So if that tells you what kind of piece of garbage we are dealing with, all sympathy or benefit of doubt has completely vanished, at least on my end. This guy is a piece of actual shit. But before they found that content, The day of the execution of the search warrant, they brought Kegan in for questioning where they had him take a polygraph test regarding another case that of course was redacted in the affidavit, but I just assume, keyword is assume, that it was possibly about Delphi. Could be wrong though, doubt I am, but whatever. He also told law enforcement that his main cell phone was actually an iPhone 5C, but that he couldn't find it and didn't know where it was when they were performing the search. So they told Kegan to find the phone and turn it in as soon as possible. And after the interview and the polygraph, he was taken back home around 730 that evening. After Kagan was dropped off that evening, Kegan found that iPhone 5C, but it wasn't until two days later that Kegan called the detectives to tell them that he found the phone, and then they didn't come get it from him until three days after that. But once they went through the phone, they found that a lot of the apps, of course, had been deleted from the phone. So they run digital forensics on the phone and they find a lot of information because the thing is you can delete stuff from your phone, but that doesn't mean that it's untraceable or gone forever, or at least it doesn't always mean that. But detectives discovered that on the 25th, the day of the search warrant, about two hours after Kegan was dropped off at home, he started deleting apps like Snapchat, meet me and Instagram off his phone. Then he re-downloaded them just to uninstall them again. I don't know if he was just downloading them again to make sure everything was erased, but either way, he uninstalled them again. And then he also erased all of his Safari search history. Sounds sus. And the thing is, he found it two hours after they dropped him off at home, but he didn't call them until two days later. That gave him ample time to try and delete or do a hard reset or whatever he needed to do on the phone, even though they told him to call as soon as possible once he found the phone. Now, for whatever reason, Kegan was never arrested after this, and I don't understand how or why, considering they had his phones with this horrible graphic content of children on them. But it wasn't until several years later in August of 2020, that he was finally charged with 30 felonies in Miami County, Indiana, including possession of child pornography and child exploitation. And since then he has been locked up in the Miami County jail. Then on August 19th of 2020, Kegan Klein was arrested and sat down with two investigators to go over the charges against him. This interview was recorded and the transcript was accidentally made available on the Internet before the mistake was discovered and it was taken down. But a podcast called The Murder Sheet obtained a copy of this transcript before it was taken down, and they have episodes dedicated to this interview specifically, and they read the entire script of this interview with sensitive names redacted. So I read the full 194-page transcript, and I pulled out the parts that I found to be relevant and most important. So I will just essentially kind of sum it up for you here. But of course, if you want to listen to the whole thing, go over to the murder sheet podcast. So during the interview, they have some small talk in the beginning, but they get down to the point and start asking him about his behavior on the internet. They first ask him who would have had access to his devices, the devices they've recovered during the search warrant. He says, nobody. Then they ask him about his various profiles online. The first fake profile they ask him about is a profile called Emily Ann 45 that was created by Kegan Klein. And I think this is just odd and says a lot, but Kegan's stepsister is named Emily Ann. So did he take this profile from her? Did he create it in an attempt to, um, like pose as her. I don't know. I just think that's an odd choice to create a fake profile and name it after someone who actually exists in your life. But this profile was used to exchange images and videos of child sexual abuse. The Emily Ann profile communicates with other profiles that appear to sometimes be actual young girls, but sometimes it's actually other men who are creating similar profiles to exchange this content with each other. When Kegan is confronted about the chat logs, he denies remembering any of these conversations, of course. And they call him out even further and say, essentially, who could have done this? It's your phone. They would have needed your passcode. But he keeps passing the buck, like, I don't know, it could have been the guy I was living with in Vegas. It could have been my dad, but it wasn't me. But he forgot that he already admitted to police that he had a problem being attracted to underage girls. And he already admitted that these were his phones and that nobody else could have used them. And let me just tell you, these chat logs span over years. It's not just an isolated incident. There are conversations that span over the course of years. So he's saying essentially someone had to have had constant access to his phone to use it for that. That wasn't him ever. It wasn't ever him. They reference later parts of the chat logs where he's receiving videos of very young girls and he's also sending them. And they point out that he sent links to a Dropbox that he owned that contained pictures and videos that have now resulted in one of the largest child pornography investigations ever undertaken in the state of Indiana. He still claims it was somebody else, probably the random guy he lived with in Vegas. And then they press further pointing out that the roommate would have had to have Keegan's phone, Keegan's phone's passcode, Keegan's Dropbox password. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He's obviously not telling the truth. And also, I want to know, I know I keep saying Kegan and Keegan. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, I've heard that he was named after his dad's favorite bar, which was like Kegan Stein. So Kegan Klein, I don't know, whatever. I, I don't know for sure the right way to pronounce it. But anyway... They point out to Kegan that the conversations and exchanges of content occur even after he was no longer living with this roommate. So how will they explain this now? They also point out that they believe two people were using this Emily Ann account because they could identify two different sets of phonetics being used throughout various conversations. And these conversations all occurred when Kegan admits he was living with his dad. So it's highly suggestive that if two sets of phonetics were being used, it might suggest that Kegan and his dad could be the ones accessing the Emily Ann 45 account. So Kegan's father is Tony Klein, and we'll come back to him in a moment because he is a very significant character here. But during this interview, the Delphi murders do come up, but it's not because the investigators bring it up. It's actually Kegan. During the interview, he began getting frustrated because the detectives were obviously not accepting his bullshit story about someone else using his devices to access child sexual abuse material. And Kegan gets frustrated that they're calling him a liar, essentially. And he says, quote, They told me that last time I was here, too, about killing two girls. That's what they said to me. They tried to say that I failed a polygraph, and then I did it, me or my dad. So you understand how I kind of have, like, kind of, like, presence where, like, wow, these guys are bullshit artists. You get where I'm coming from? End quote. So I want to add that he did take a polygraph. Police allegedly told him that he failed it. And I don't know for sure if that is true because police or detectives during an interrogation can tell you that you failed a polygraph, even if you actually passed it. It's just a a technique that they use during interrogations to try to get the truth out of somebody. So I don't know for sure if he, if he passed or failed a polygraph, but he was told apparently that he failed it, but there is a reason that his dad is being pulled into this when the detectives confront Kagan about the metadata from the content he was sending, they expose that it was all coming from the same GPS location, Kagan and his dad's house in Peru, Indiana. Some of the conversations even mention his dad, like when the Emily Ann account asks an underage girl online, quote, My dad wants to know how old you are and how often you have sex. End quote. And I'll stop there because the conversation gets so disturbing that I really wish I could unsee what I read. It was horrible. But the reason I included is because I need to paint this accurate picture of Kagan and his father Tony, so that their connection to the Delphi murders can make more sense. Once you put all these pieces together, the puzzle becomes more and more clear. Once someone shows you their true colors, you have to believe them. So investigators grab on to what Kegan just said, and they tell Kegan, quote, you know, the Delphi investigation, we found things that you weren't honest about either, and we need to discuss it, end quote. So we already know that 10 days after the murders, Kegan's home was raided and searched by police, and that is how they found all the child pornography on his devices. And when he was asked about Liberty and Abby, he denied ever talking to them or knowing anything about them. And then when confronted with the fact that they have evidence linking him to the girls, He changed his story and said he talked to Liberty a little bit, but ended up blocking her early on because he found her to be annoying. That's what he said. But when police went through his Snapchat data, they found the truth. Snapchat might delete on our phones, but the data remains. And in this case, it was accessible to investigators. So they found the truth about their communications, and there was no way Kegan could lie his way out of this one. Investigators had proof that he talked to Liberty through Snapchat the night before the murders. He told police that they never exchanged pictures, but then in the next sentence, he literally said, well, I knew they were at a sleepover together because they sent me pictures. So he can't even keep his story straight, which is obviously a huge red flag. Investigators probe further and remind Kegan that he told investigators he never talked about the girls going missing. But they have proof that he logged on to the Anthony Schatz profile after the girls went missing. And one of Liberty's friends reached out to him and said, did you hear what happened to Liberty? And he says, OMG, what happened? And Kegan, under this guise of Anthony Schatz, said, quote, yeah, we were supposed to meet, but she never showed up, End quote. And just like that, Kegan says, well, that wasn't me. Someone else must have been using his phone because he did not say that. Absolutely not. 100% knows for a fact. It was not him using his phone at that very specific moment in time. How convenient is it that sometimes he remembers things, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he's using his phone, sometimes it's someone else. And then get this, the detectives bring up another instance of someone talking to the Anthony Schatz profile that he admits to creating, by the way. But before they say who it is, they ask him if he knows all these people from this same family. And Keegan admits, yeah, I know this family. I know them really well. So then they say, well, this girl in the family was talking to Anthony Schatz online. And at one point, she gave Anthony Schatz her home address because she said her parents wouldn't be home for a couple hours after school. And she was trying to hook up. So she comes home, gets off the bus, and sees a man in a ski mask hiding out below her window, peering into her windows. And suddenly Keegan's like, yeah, I don't remember any of that. I don't remember her ever giving me an address. Of course you don't. It's just interesting though, that he remembers some things, but not others. And it's only the incriminating things that he doesn't remember. Detectives point out that he tried erasing his search history on one of his phones from February 10th to the 15th. The perfect window two days before and two days after the murders. He also deleted the Instagram and Snapchat apps from his phone, two apps that he used to communicate with Liberty. On his other phone, he was searching constantly about the Delphi murders, reading up on every single article as it was going on, before he was ever even approached by police. And after he took his polygraph and gave investigators a sample of his DNA, he came home and searched, quote, How long does DNA last? End quote. He was obsessed with this case, but he tried to play it off to detectives, like, Yeah, I was just interested because it's near where I live, that's all. But police also point out that Kagan Googled the address to a Marathon gas station on the day of the murders, and this gas station was only three miles away from the Monon Bridge. This could be a reach, but is it possible that he Googled that gas station as a reference point to go to the Monon Bridge? Like maybe the girls told him to meet him there, but gave him directions based on the location of the gas station. The gas station cooperated with investigators by giving them their security camera footage or at least the hard drive that would have contained it. But unfortunately, the footage wasn't available and it was lost. So we have no proof if Kegan was ever at the gas station that day. The interview eventually has to end and Keegan is taken back to jail and we're left to wonder what his involvement in this case could have been. What could his dad's involvement in the case could have been? Could the sketch of the younger man be a sketch of Keegan and the older looking sketch be his dad or vice versa? Did they conspire to commit this crime together? The sketches do look eerily similar, and I'm going to put side-by-side shots on our Instagram for you to see for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Um, Our Instagram is mama.mysterypodcast. I did change the name just so it's a little easier to find. And since this interview, he has been in jail awaiting for his trial on the child pornography charges. But let's fast forward to now, August 23rd of last week. Indiana State Police took custody of Kegan Klein and then took him back to the Miami County Jail, and this is unusual because it required a transfer of custody. So, what did State Police want with Kegan, and why did his attorney delay a pre-trial conference on the child exploitation charges due to negotiations in progress? Could it be because he's offering up a plea deal by giving up information on the Delphi case to get a reduced sentence of his own? After the state police took Kegan out in their cruiser, law enforcement descended upon a spot beneath a bridge above the Wabash River, and this is only six minutes away from where Kagan and Tony used to live. They've been searching a specific spot in this river for days, and we have no idea what they're looking for specifically, but there have been a lot of volunteers of law enforcement in this area searching a specific spot under this bridge. Could it be a murder weapon that one of them dropped off the ri- off, to, off of the bridge into the river? Or could it be an article of clothing belonged to, belonging to the girls because it was reported that whoever killed the girls took a souvenir with them? What could it be? Law enforcement has been out there for an entire week now, day after day, searching the water and riverbed under this bridge. If they do find what they're looking for, what they're told to look for, it would corroborate what Kegan has told them, and could bring a lot of the pieces to this puzzle together. Now, Kegan has always denied his involvement in the Delphi murders. Of course, he has, but he has also apparently failed the polygraph test in the beginning. So, could he be suggesting that maybe his dad had something to do with it instead? Kegan's trial isn't until January, so he's running out of time. He's running out of options. I also want to talk about a little more about Tony Klein, just so you get an idea of what type of guy he is. So in June of 2005, Tony assaulted a woman in front of six people, including the woman's 11-year-old daughter. And then after the mom got a restraining order against him, he started stalking the daughter And then he was eventually brought in and charged with harassment. He pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to one year in jail, but only ended up serving probation for that. Then in 2008, two women reported being harassed over the phone. Their phone would ring, they'd pick it up, and it would be a man on the other end moaning, asking if they could get him off. They eventually traced those calls to Tony. They confront him with it, police confront him with it, and he admits to it. And then he continued to call. So then he was arrested for harassment. And then he was arrested in another county for doing the same thing. But he was only sentenced to probation. What? What is going on? Like, who keeps dropping all the balls here? This guy is known by his family to be abusive. He shot their family dog. He was terrible to his stepchildren, and the stepchildren recall that he always treated Kegan like Kagan was a golden child. And I also want to point out this odd relationship that Kagan and Tony have. After the murders, Kagan and Tony left for Vegas And they got back on the 25th. But while they were there, they planned to go to the Bunny Ranch and then decided it was too expensive. But I guess that they talked about getting sexual jobs from this ranch. Like, I guess they planned on doing this together. I don't know. It's gross. It's a very strange father-son relationship they have here. Um, But yesterday... The murder sheet posted an episode detailing a conversation that they had personally with Kegan Klein. So, the way they were able to do this is I guess at the jail where Kegan is currently being housed, they have this like chirping system. So, it's kind of like you get to text inmates through this chirp system. You have to pay for the text messages in order to send and receive them. But Of course, a lot of people are going on there and they're trying to talk to Kagan. And the Murder Sheet podcast was able to actually get in touch with him. However, Kagan is not interested really in getting his side of the story out. He's interested solely in money. He's very defensive when they talk to him, when they're asking him questions. He says, I'm not talking to you until you want to pay me because I've been screwed over in the past. And he talks a lot about just self-pity. He's complaining about being hungry, even though he has gained a ton of weight while he is in jail. And I don't know, the whole thing, I listened to their back and forth on the Murder Sheet podcast and... I mean, the thing is, Kagan has proven to have a disjointed relationship with the truth. So even if they did waste the money to talk to him, which they didn't, they, uh, I guess Kagan was demanding something like $400 for an, a one-hour interview, But the Murder Sheet podcast did not go through with that because they wanted to keep their integrity as reporters. And they also just didn't think that Kegan would tell the truth anyway. So it would probably just be a huge waste. But I don't know. I just feel like if you were really innocent, wouldn't you speak to anyone who would listen for free just to get your side of the story out there? I don't know. But as this case continues to develop, I will keep you updated. Um, As of now, that's about all we have. So until next week, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will be back with a case on Kylie Rodney. It's a very highly publicized, recent, ongoing investigation. It's been highly requested. So we are actually going to make that one a Patreon exclusive. So if you aren't already, go over to patreon.com slash mama mystery to become a Patreon. You'll get exclusive ad-free episodes, stickers every month, and discounts on our merchandise. So have a great week. Thanks for listening.